Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. This week, we'll see the official dedication of the National Native American Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. The event includes a processional on the National Mall that includes Native veterans. It's just one of the events this week to honor the service and sacrifices of Native veterans. We'll give a preview of the event and hear about other ways Native veterans are being recognized heading into Veterans Day. We're back after the news. National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Election Day is here. Oklahoma is poised to make history with the likelihood of three Native Americans expected to serve in Congress. Incumbent Representative Tom Cole is heavily favored to be re-elected to his seat. Mark Wayne Mullen is giving up his House seat and is leading in the race for U.S. Senate. Josh Burkeen is expected to win the race to fill Mullen's seat. All are Republicans and enrolled in Oklahoma tribes. One incumbent in Oklahoma faces a stiff challenge for re-election. Governor Kevin Stitt is a Republican and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, but he's been at odds with the state's tribes since early in his first term. The Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Muscogee Nations are among the tribes that have thrown their support to his Democratic opponent. Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. calls the governor's race the most important in the state's history. Among things, Stitt has clashed with tribes over gaming compacts. He's also aggressive pursued legal actions to limit tribal jurisdiction. At least 10 Native candidates are vying for congressional seats in the midterms, and many more are on the ballots in local and state races. Two Native congressional incumbents are in tight races following redistricting. Pre-election polling shows New Mexico Republican Representative Yvette Harrell in a close race with her Democratic opponent. Harrell is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Meanwhile, Kansas Democrat Sharice Davids, who was among the first two Native women elected to the House of Representatives in 2018, is facing strong competition from her Republican challenger. Davids is a citizen of the Ho-Chunk Nation. And in Alaska, Representative Mary Peltola has been campaigning to keep her seat. Peltola made history in September, becoming the first Alaska Native person, Yupik, to ever serve in Congress. She won the late Republican Congressman Don Young's seat in a special election. The Democrat has brought support from Alaska Native communities. In an interview with the National Native News in October, Peltola discussed serving Alaska Native and American Indian people, but also all people. It's a serious job. Um... And I, I don't see this as um, a, like a stepping stone to anything else. I don't see this as a springboard to anything else. I really just very literally take this job for at face value. I want to work hard for Alaskans. Peltola has been endorsed by the Alaska Federation of Natives, the largest statewide native organization in Alaska. The race for top leader of one of the largest tribes in the United States, the Navajo Nation, is underway. Current President Jonathan Nez is facing challenger Boo Nigren, the tribe which has the largest reservation in the U.S., located in the Four Corners region, was hit hard by COVID-19. Nez has led the tribe through the pandemic, issuing a number of emergency measures. Dropping mandates and fully reopening the Navajo Nation are issues the candidates disagree on. Nez says the tribe needs to continue to be cautious with 
with COVID-19 and now with monkeypox. We are utilizing those uh, lessons learned from COVID-19. And right now we're just monitoring the situation. And, you know, I think eventually uh, the government's going to have to step back because the government has taught everyone how to what to do and what not to do. Nigren says the Navajo Nation is ready to fully reopen and move forward from the pandemic. The Navajo Nation, we've continued to uh, stifle our communities, scare our people. And since I made my announcement on April 4th, being the first person to announce for president, I said it's about time. We reopen 100%. As Navajo voters head to the polls, both say they're focused on working hard for Navajo people to improve infrastructure, create jobs, and address social issues. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson, a novel about a Métis woman adopted by white parents who goes in search of her identity. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Call the Epilepsy and Seizures 24-7 helpline at 1-800-332-1000 to speak with an epilepsy information specialist. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Officials are formally dedicating the National Native American Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. on Veterans Day this Friday. The monument is on the grounds of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. It's been years in the making, and the design is like no other veterans monument. We'll hear from the artist, Harvey Pratt, in a bit, too, and he'll explain more about how the large art piece honors Native veterans. We'll also check in on a new virtual Native veterans exhibit and get an update on an Alaska Native veterans program. You can join our conversation and celebration too. How will you and your Native community be honoring Native veterans this year? Please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's our number. You can also dial 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us first from Washington, D.C. is Harvey Pratt. He designed the National Native American Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., known as Warriors Circle of Honor. Harvey is Cheyenne Arapaho. Harvey, welcome back to Native America Calling, and congratulations to you and all Native veterans on the memorial. Well, thank you so much for having me, and it is a, it is a great honor. I'm just, uh, I can't tell you the, how excited we are about this. Well, Harvey, you have had a, a very long, distinguished career as an artist. Uh, you just had a really interesting, interesting background. We were talking a little bit about the before the show about just the different types of artwork you do. But uh, tell us more now about the Warrior Circle of Honor and your inspiration for creating it. Well, the Warrior Circle of Honor was uh, was really uh, something that I wanted the people to be involved in. I didn't want them just going and looking at a statue. I wanted them to going to this memorial and becoming involved to be interactive with it. And uh, it was, and I wanted it to, uh, to touch uh, our past, present 
and future veterans. I didn't choose a specific time. I wanted it to honor all of our veterans from time in the past to the future. Past, present, and future, get people involved. And uh, when did the idea for a Native American Veterans Memorial first take hold? Well, I think they thought about it early in the 90s, and, but they never made any, any uh, uh, avenue for funding. And so it, and later on, they, they finally directed it to the uh, museum here in, in D.C. And <clears throat> they set up a program and they sent some people around the country asking veterans what they wanted in their memorial. And uh, it came to uh, Oklahoma on two different times. And, and uh, I attended those meetings with, along with our Office of Veteran Affairs for the Cheyenne Arapahoes. And uh, they uh, asked me, they said, Harvey, why don't you get involved in this? And I said, oh, they probably already picked an artist. I said, it'd just be wasting my time. But but uh, apparently they had picked an artist and uh, <laughs> I made a couple of entries. I made an entry and uh, and uh, we forwarded them. I took them, actually, I took them to Washington. I took my designs from Washington and uh, I was going to show them to the to people at the museum and I did not realize that this was a closed competition. You couldn't enter your name or your tribal affiliation, and uh, I'm, I was getting ready to uh, to uh, show some people at the museum my design, and and my friend Walter Lamar uh, stopped me and he said, "Harvey, don't do that. He said, if you show them, you'll disqualify yourself." Mm-hmm. So we just wrapped everything up, took it home, and we finally read the rules about what you have to do, <laughs> and uh, and you couldn't had to submit everything electronically, and, and so that's what my wife and I did, and my son. We uh, we submitted our uh, uh, plans uh, electronically, and and uh, there was uh, 513 entries from five different countries, and they narrowed it down to 120, and then I was one of the five finalists. Okay, so this international competition, hundreds of people that initially entered in. It, with a closed entry like this, I mean, there was no guarantee that it would even be a Native artist selected. Exactly. Exactly. It's it, it just, uh, <clears throat> they just uh, was going to pick people at, 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 as far as their design went. And, and I think that, uh, you know, my design was, uh, was not a statue. It was something that you could walk into and become involved in. And you could you could do your ceremonies, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's what I plan. You know, how do you reach 573 different federally recognized tribes in Alaska and Hawaii and <laughs> reach them right. through ceremony tradition? And that's how I approach my design. Well, tell us more about the memorial. I know it consists of a large stainless steel circle. It's it's balanced on a stone drum. What does it represent? That well, I uh, th- there's a there's there's a lot of facets to uh, to my design that I that I was hoping that that native people would recognize and and early on I realized that uh, native people are the same but we're different. You know we have we kind of have the same attitude about how you how you how you honor things how you honor the earth how you honor the the spirits, how you honor the, the directions and, and the sacred, you know, you, you, uh, you do that through ceremony and their traditions. And that's how I approached it, that uh, I would include 
all these different aspects of of uh, our ceremonies that somebody could always uh, see see that their tribe did that, you know, through sacred fires and water and the air and the earth and the directions and the cardinal points and the sacred colors and uh, and I just I expanded from there and then I I the design developed, you know, we had so many people. Uh, architects that came in to uh, assist us and help us finalize uh, so many aspects of this design. Uh, we had the, we chose our design architects, uh, Hans and Tori Butcher from Oklahoma. They did the, uh, the Murrah building uh, design in, in Oklahoma City and they agreed to help me. And, and people just came from nowhere and said, uh, well, let me help you. We'll help you do this. And I said, you know, I said, I don't know if I can afford you guys. I said, don't worry about that. So I just felt like from the very beginning that uh, this was supposed to happen, that the creator uh, uh, had, had, had helped me and, and sent all these little people to help me develop the, the design. Harvey, how long did it take you to come up with the design and, and then actually fabricate and render the monument? Well, <clears throat> I, was, uh, I submitted my first design in 2017. Uh, and. Uh, and so, you know, from 2017 to 2020 uh, was a matter of construction and development, refining and and, uh, and touch and think, make things all work together. And they, I'll give you a good example. You know, we we wanted granite and they wanted to know, and I I didn't think about it. I said, well, I just want granite, I want this color. And they said, well, you gotta have a color, a texture. And, uh, and then I said, what kind of fire do you want? I said, well, I want a hot fire. And they said, well, no, you know, you want, I said, well, you want propane or you want gas or how do you want that to happen? Where do you want it to control from? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I never thought about it, but I said, I want it to look like a natural campfire, you know? So that's, that's you know, you had to figure out even the, the type of fire you wanted and then the type of water that you wanted. Do you want it? Do you want water coming out of the, out of the, uh, the, the little pond there? Do you want to come and pump it through? You know, do you want people to be able to use it? And uh, so there was just a lot of things that I, I had not considered. And I thought when I made the design that I was done, and they said, no, you're not done. You have to watch over everything to make sure that they don't change your concept. And I think that was so important that uh, they held me, they held the, the concept true uh, to, uh, and didn't let it change. You know, we had architects for, for the plants. We had water architects, we had lighting architects, we had, uh, different specialists that came in and they just did a wonderful job, you know, and, and our design architects, uh, the boosters were just invaluable because they had already gone through this and they knew that they knew all the pitfalls of what was going to happen and how to get around them and what they needed to do to correct it. So there was just a lot of people that helped us. Now, these architects uh, that you mentioned, Harvey, do any of them represent native architecture firms? Well, uh, we had uh, we had native people help us uh, in uh, constructing the steel. Mm. We had a we had a we had an Oklahoma uh, business that was owned by uh, Choctaws, and they uh, they helped us construct the steel and and made sure that everything was done right, and and we uh, uh, blessed it and we blessed everything and and uh, shipped it forward. They were the Redlands Redlands sheet metal company in Oklahoma City and, and they were just invaluable. They were, you know, 
Yeah, it sounds like just a, an absolutely breathtaking monument. And, and when you describe the details that go into it, having to choose the right type of fuel to, to burn the fire and these different stone choices and just a lot of obviously just a, a lot going on here. And, and it sounds like a, just a, a really strong partnership and able to to make this uh, monument come to fruition. And uh, so, Harvey, it's going to open on Friday, and and you mentioned, uh, you know, the the past and the present and, and the future, and so many different Native American tribes and communities. Well over five hundred and sixty-five federally recognized Native communities, and, and to create something that can pay homage to the wide range of of Native veterans who serve and have served in, in so many different branches of the armed forces. Uh, throughout so many years. It's just wonderful that this is uh, finally happening. And again, that's going to be this Friday there at the mall in Washington, D.C. And anybody listening today, if you are a Native veteran or you are related to a Native veteran and you want to give any Native veteran a shout out today, or you'd like to give a shout out to our first guest on the show today, Harvey Pratt, please, what are you waiting for? That number to call 1-800-996-2848. Once again, let's get some calls going. Native veterans, let's pay some respect. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. There's a lot on the line in the midterm elections, the control of Congress, the ability to appoint federal judges, and a host of issues that directly affect all voters. We'll review the political landscape that is developing after the elections and what it means from a Native perspective. That's on the next Native America Calling. Did you know more than 51,000 Native and Indigenous people are living with epilepsy in the United States? Epilepsy is a neurological disorder that causes recurring, sudden, unprovoked surges of abnormal electrical activity in the brain. Call 1-800-332-1000 to get information and resources. Help someone you know by learning seizure first aid at epilepsy.com slash first aid. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're recognizing the contributions and sacrifices of Native veterans today, and we're putting the spotlight on the Smithsonian's National Native American Veterans Memorial. Are there memorials or spaces in your community dedicated to honoring Native veterans? Join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That number, once again, 1-800-996-2848. And we have a caller on the line right now, Aaron, listening on KUYI in Hopi, Arizona. Aaron, thanks for calling in today. Thank, thank you, buddy. I have a big, big, big question. My question is, John, the Hopi says we don't go to war. But the war is not good for people to go. Because my, my people say, you don't just go. That's why I'm, our son, our father, 
telling us you need to pray. That's why things happening is going on right now. There's a lot of killings going on. Mm-hmm. It's hurting my people. Aaron, I appreciate you calling in and sharing those views and uh, and, and letting us know uh, the traditions there of your Hopi people and um, anti-war in nature. And it's certainly something for us to, to really acknowledge and think about, even when, when honoring Native veterans and, and to be mindful of, of different tribal communities and their perspectives on on war and and what serving in the military sometimes can entail. So Aaron, really appreciate you calling in today. And and Harvey, um, you're a veteran. You're a veteran as well. And um, what would you like to tell us uh, about your, your service there in the military? And uh, first off, also thank you for your service, Harvey. Well, thank you so much, Sean. I, I, uh, I joined the Marine Corps and uh, with the uh, sent to uh, Vietnam in 1963. Uh, I believe that I was the first Native American combat Marine into South Vietnam because uh, they didn't send combat troops until 65, but they sent us because uh, they needed someone to, uh, they needed a team to recover uh, pilots that were being shot down, helicopter pilots and spotter planes. And they they needed someone to protect the uh, da Nang Air Base, and so they sent they sent a, a group of us in there, and I I was uh, uh, raised to uh, to honor and respect veterans, servicemen, and my uncle was a World War II guy. He was a Korean guy. He also served it uh, was still active in, when I was in Vietnam, uh, but uh, he had been missing two two times in in the Second World War. And, he was wounded several times, and and uh, when I told my mother that I joined the Marine Corps and was going to be leaving in three days, I'll never forget her expression, her face, when she looked at me and her mouth dropped open, and I called it the silent scream, and I couldn't, I wasn't quite sure why that, why she reacted that way. And after I got a little older and after I came back from Vietnam, I realized that she was thinking about her brother, and was that going to happen to her child? So that uh, there's things like that 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 really make you uh, wonder. And, and I've had several people say, you know what, uh, my mother did the same thing. She just had that look on her face, like, oh my God, what have you done? And so you know, so I think that that silent scream is a lot of mothers had that uh, that silent yeah. scream. And you see, you see that uh, uh, I don't think that that uh, men or women are, are warriors just because they went to fight. I think that they're, they're warriors because uh, they took care of their families. They took care of their children. They took care of the of, uh, orphans and they took care of, of widows. And, you know, they, they took care of everybody. There's more to being a warrior than just fighting. There's a lot of other things, aspects of it, taking care of the traditions and the ceremonies and the families. So it, to me, that was, that was so important that, that, uh, that we understand that that it's there's more to than uh, being a warrior than just uh, just fighting. You know, I, I'll tell you a story. A long time ago, uh, when when guys came back from 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 doing those kind of things, a lot of tribes wouldn't let them back in the camp. They made them stay outside the camp and howl like wolves, and and they sent medicine men and holy men out there to pray for them and take care of them because they didn't want people coming into their camp that were. Uh, 
carrying that uh, that bitterness, that hard fighting, you know, that and they didn't want them among the human beings. And so they we were treating P- PTSD way before a lot of people uh, did here in in America. That our family did that when I came back. They they did those ceremonies for me, and I think those mean so much for us. Harvey, you mentioned the silent scream, and I, I can relate somewhat. When I was a young child, and Vietnam War was still going on in the early 70s, and I remember one time being in an airport with my older sister and my mom, and there were a group of young recruits that were, were being sent out there at the airport to Vietnam. And I remember my mom started just, she, tears were coming from her eyes, and we were just watching. We were sitting there, and I remember my sister and I said, well, what's wrong? Why, why are you crying? And she said, those boys there, they're going off to war, and and some of them aren't going to come home. And uh, I think so many, so many of us on so many levels uh, are, are so grateful and, and appreciate so much the the service of you and, and all the other veterans and, and so many branches of the service. Let's go ahead and take a call now. We have Julius listening on KYUK in Bethel, Alaska. Julius, thank you for calling in to Native America Calling today. Hey, good morning. What is your name again? My name's Sean. I'm the host of the show, Julius. Hey, Sean. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Um, I'm working right now, and today's my day off. I'm taking my dog out, and if you serve in the military, armed forces, and you're a first responder, appreciate what you do. Keep doing, keep your head up, and put your life in perspective. Give thanks to the Lord each day. I wake up, I have two feet, I put my boots on, I have two arms, I put my coat on, <laughs> and... I did five years active army. I was stationed in Baumolder, Germany. I deployed to Ramadi, Iraq, 0506. My father, he was stationed in Stuttgart, Germany, 66 to 69. And I've been there. I traveled there. So life's good. Whatever you're going through right now, it's this too shall pass. Well, Julius, uh, really want to thank you for your service, uh, as well as your father's service and any other family members you have who are veterans and, and appreciate your words of wisdom. That's Julius calling in from Bethel, Alaska. And our next guest is actually from Alaska. So let's go ahead and introduce her now. Joining us is Candy Grimes. She's the Adjudication Services Section Chief for the Bureau of Land Management. Candy, welcome to Native America Calling. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for helping us get out the word to all the uh, Alaska Native veterans and their families outside of Alaska about the Alaska Native Veteran Land Program. Well, absolutely, and it's uh, very auspicious that we have a caller just now, Julius, calling in from Bethel. And uh, the Alaska Veteran Program, it was started in 2019. Tell us more. What's the focus of the program? Okay. Well, um, the Native Allotment Program actually started in 1906 with the original uh, Native Allotment Program. There was a lot of restrictions, um, but the Dingle Act removed a lot of those restrictions, and um, there's no use in occupancy. It's for the Alaska Native veterans who served at some time between August 5th of 1964 and December 31st of 1971 who did not receive lands under any other Native Allotment Program in their own uh, name. Um, if they uh, served during that time, they could have served anywhere. They didn't have to serve in Vietnam, um, and they can apply for and receive lands. If it's a deceased veteran, uh, a member of their family can uh, go through the Alaska State Court 
to be appointed the personal rep of the estate of the deceased vet, and they can apply on behalf of the estate of the deceased vet. Now, where can our listeners go to learn more about this program, Candy? Okay, uh, please go to our website at blm.gov forward slash Alaska. Um, under popular links, uh, about halfway down is the link to our website for the Alaska Native Veteran Land Development Program. And once you get there, it has our frequently asked questions. It has a link to the uh, map showing the lands available for selection. It has a, uh, the application itself. There are two tutorials on there uh, explaining the map and how to uh, go through it um, and select your land. It also has a tutorial about the application and how to fill it out and what's required. Um, there's also links to uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Veteran Administration, and Alaska Legal Services. Um, it's a nonprofit service up here that helps uh, people um, fill out paperwork for uh, the personal rep. Um, requirement for um, okay. deceased vets. Now, Candy, uh, how much land are we talking about, and what specifically can veterans do with the land? Okay. Well, uh, each uh, veteran or um, personal rep of a deceased veteran can apply for up to 160 acres, and they can do what they want with the land. Uh, there's no requirements to use it. There's no requirements to build on it. Uh, most of the vets that I've spoken with um, are applying for this land to uh, give to their children and grandchildren to use for subsistence use, uh, mainly uh, because most of it is in the rural of Alaska for um, go hunting and fishing and um, enjoy their life. Now, remind us, uh, to be eligible, you have to be either a Native veteran or, or the spouse of a deceased veteran. Is that right? It'd be Alaska Native veteran or a family member of Alaska Native veteran. You don't have to be the spouse. Um, uh, you need, we need to remember that the uh, veterans who apply for this um, served during the time of uh, 64 to 71. They're you know, they're. Um, in their 70s or so, and so a lot of them have already, you know, passed away, and so uh, a lot of their spouses have passed away also. So this is more likely than not, it'd be their children or grandchildren applying on behalf of the deceased vets. Okay. Now, are there any services as well with the program to help uh, these Alaska Native veterans in, in terms of developing that land or, or using it in any way? Okay. Um, no, there's no uh, write-out services for developing it in any way. Um, uh, once they receive title to the land, they can work with the Bureau of Indian Affairs on uh, what they want to do if there's any extra things. Um, but uh, as for the Bureau of Land Management, uh, we have no extra services pertaining to that. Okay. And Vietnam-era veterans, that's as far back uh, as we go in terms of eligibility for the program? Yeah, yes, it's uh, well. You didn't have to serve in Vietnam. It's uh, but if you served between August fifth, nineteen sixty four, and December thirty first, nineteen seventy one, and you did not receive land from the Bureau of Land Management in your own name, you are qualified for this um, this uh, program. Now we have a list of predetermined eligible individuals, um, but. Um, as anything, any list, you know, humans are involved, so it's not a perfect list. 
So if you're not on the list and you do not receive a letter from us, please contact us. Um, you can go to our website at blm.gov forward slash Alaska, or you can call me directly at 907-271-5998 or at my email, which is cgrimes at blm.gov. And we can uh, give you the direct information on what you'll need to provide um, to prove that you're an eligible individual for this program. Well, Candy, thank you for joining us today and sharing all of this information about the Alaska Veteran Program. Uh, really appreciate your time, Candy. And I, I do want to make a, a couple of comments on air. We did have one caller, didn't want to go on the air, but uh, the name is Melinda, listening in Toppenish, Washington on KYNR. And Melinda would like to honor Native veterans from the Yakima Nation. Also, we want to make note that today, November 8, is National Indigenous Veterans Day in Canada. So let's give a shout out to our brothers and sisters who are veterans uh, north of the border there. And let's go ahead and go on to our next guest. And this person is also joining us from Washington, D.C., Alexandra Harris. She's the senior editor in the NMAI Publications Office and co-author of Why We Serve Native Americans in the United States Armed Forces. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon, Sean. Good afternoon to you as well, and congratulations on the book. And tell us now why we serve. Uh, it chronicles 250 years of Native Americans serving in the U.S. military. Alexandra, has a book like this ever been written before? Many books have been written about very specific eras of Native military history from colonial uh, eras on. And, and sometimes they'll do a deep dive just about one conflict. But um, there have been a few uh, more popular books, um, and, and sometimes they tend to romanticize uh, combat and warfare rather than um, give more of a mindful um, idea of what Native people actually experienced over, the, over history. And it's really, really complicated. So we can't claim to um, be comprehensive, but uh, it, it, it really gave us an idea of just the commitment of service that Native people have, have, uh, have made to, to the United States for the last 250 years. So 250 years, we're going back to Revolutionary War, that time period, and, and Natives who served? That's correct. And, and really, um, you know, our scope was, was the United States, but, but in reality, Native nations were the first allies of the, of the colonies, right? That the European colonies that, that, that landed here, they, they, the, they realized, the colonists uh, realized so early on that they couldn't um, survive without alliances with tribes. Uh, so they, they saw, oh, well, okay, these are hereditary en enemies. We're going to ally with these people to defeat these other Native nations. And that's, that's kind of what, what happened, especially in the Northeast. Um, but those alliances, uh, you know, started in the 1600s. Mm -hmm. 
Well, a really interesting book uh, recently published. I'm going to talk more with Alexandra off after the break because NMAI is, is obviously playing a huge role in Veterans Day coming up on Friday. So we're going to learn more about those activities. And in the meantime, if you are listening and you want to give a shout out to a Native veteran or if you are a Native veteran and you want to share some experiences with our listeners, what are you waiting for? 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. We are honoring Native veterans today, and Veterans Day is coming up on Friday, November 11th. So please give us a call if you want to talk anything about your time in the military, your service, or if you want to give tribute to a relative or a friend, a family member, anyone who is a Native veteran, that's what our show is dedicated to today. 1-800-996-2848. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Native American Heritage Month, remember one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a health care professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're sharing Native veteran stories today, and there's still time to join us. Have you served in any branch of the military? How about someone in your family? Give a shout out by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got a caller on the line now, Frank. He's listening on Keeley in Pine Ridge. Frank, hello. Welcome to Native America Calling. Hey, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Frank. Like What's you want that? Me to give a okay. Uh, yeah, I'd like to give a shout-out to the, uh, the old Oglala Sioux Tribe uh, uh, veterans out there in South Dakota. And, you know, I served in the Marine Corps from 1990 to 94, and I was deployed in uh, the Gulf War and uh, Mogadishu, Somalia. With, uh, 3rd Battalion, 9th Marine. So I just want to give a shout out to all the veterans out there, all the, the warriors, and uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, happy Veterans Day. Frank, happy Veterans Day to you as well, and thank you very much for your service. That's Frank up in Pine Ridge, and he's giving a shout out to Oglala veterans and warriors in South Dakota. We're talking with Alexandra Harris. She is at NMAI, and she's a co-author of a new book, Why We Serve Native Americans in the United States Armed Forces. And uh, Alexandra, tell us, uh, what events are planned for Friday's dedication ceremony there in Washington, D.C.? Sure. Um, first of all, it begins at about 2 p.m. with a Native veterans procession. I believe about 1,800 veterans are going to be processing to the dedication ceremony on the National Mall. And they're currently representing about more than 125 tribes and communities. 
Then the dedication starts at 4 p.m. Um, with uh, the Smithsonian Secretary, Lonnie Bunch will speak, um, the National Museum of the American Indians Director, Cynthia Chavez-Lamar, uh, Representative Sharice Davids, um, and several other uh, representatives from the Senate. Uh, the VA Secretary will be there. Um, so many illustrious speakers from, um, from around Indian country and the federal government. Well, it sounds like just kind of a who's who of uh, a big name native figures there in the D.C. area. And um, Alexandra, there's also an exhibit. Is it tied into to your book? It is. It's based on the book. And if you can't visit the ex exhibition at our museum, you can visit online on our website. You can find the entire exhibition there as well. Um, but it, it, it uh, again, like we, we wanted to create something a little bit different to survey the whole history of, of the Native military experience. You know, especially what, what you mentioned and, and the Hopi gentleman who called before, but the diversity of different tribal traditions concerning war and concerning peace, you know, that, that dedication to diplomacy and peace. And, and also what Harvey mentioned before, this idea that um, war is actually a state of imbalance in many, many tribal traditions. And so what experiences have Native people had with restoring that balance and how they changed over time and today. So we touch on that in the exhibition, but we go deeper in the book. Um, we have a whole chapter called Cultures of War, just exploring how traditions changed over time, adapted to contemporary warfare, and how they still continue. So um, one of the, the things we really wanted to emphasize was the diversity of, of tribal traditions, like no one tribe, you know, there's no monolithic tradition. There's no warrior tradition that applies to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, there's traditions of peace, like the Hopi and many California tribes, for example. So, um, and, you know, uh, documenting the history of women's experience uh, throughout the entire 250 years as well. Um, who served? Who were the first women to serve? Those sort of stories. So you'll find out some of the rarely told stories. Mm -hmm. uh, Alexandria, did you learn at all? I mean, is there one branch of service that has the largest number of, of Native veterans? Does anybody have that data? We do have that data. Um, in fact, I may have it here. I believe it's the Army. Um, the Army. I know at, the, at this point, the uh, I have uh, data okay. at my hand for the entire military force, but not. Uh, <laughs> okay. Marine Corps and Army are some of the most, then Navy, uh, Coast Guard. Air Force are uh, Coast Guard and Air Force are, are the are the least uh, participation, but you know there, there's some some core people. For example, like people on the coast um, were some of the you know native people on the coast, west, east coast, Hawaii, or some of the uh, original members of the Coast Guard volunteers who knew their waterways the best. Okay. Well, I know Native people do serve at a greater rate than the rest of the population. And I know that Pacific Islanders, um, there's a tremendous, tremendous uh, history of military service within those communities as well. And let's go back to Harvey Pratt. And Harvey, why is it? Why, why is it that so many of our Native brothers and sisters are inspired to serve in the military? What do you think that is? 
Well, I think there are several reasons uh, uh, that you could really talk about, but I like I like to say that that uh, Native people fight for this land. When uh, when the Creator gave it to the Indians, He gave it to the Indians first. So this is Indian country. This has always be our land. You know, we we uh, we fought for this land, and and we fought for this land in other countries. Uh, Native American blood is spilled all over this earth, you know, and uh, that's why I think that that uh, we uh, we fight for this land. Besides, you know, we're not necessarily a warrior culture, but we are we are defending our homeland, and I think that's why why Indian people do that. My uh, my mother's aunt told us when we were little boys. My sisters, I had three sisters. They were all older than than us four boys, and they said uh, what. Aunt Laura, how come you guys treat them boys better than us? And Aunt Laura said, uh, because they may have to die for you someday. They may have to die die for you and die for the, the camp and the village and this land. And they might give up their life. And so we, we know that they're, that they're only here for a short time, a lot of them. So that's why we treat them well. And I always remember that. I didn't understand that at first. It's just kind of like, when they used to tell us, you know, I was raised by people that were uh, born in the 1870s and 80s, and uh, they would tell us things like, uh, "Put your put your shoes right there by the bed. You might have to get up and run in the night." And I, and as a little boy, I didn't understand that until I got older, and I realized that that that's what happened uh, when uh, they were attacked in their camps that they had to get up and run in the middle of the night. So there's just a lot of little stories like that that. Uh, that kind of instilled you, and like I said earlier, you have to be uh, be respectful of veterans. You know, they may mm-hmm. die, they may have to die. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Harvey, you shared earlier you first stepped foot in Vietnam in 1963 uh, in, in efforts to uh, to to go out and, and secure uh, downed helicopter pilots. And, and how long were you in Vietnam for total? I was in Vietnam about nine months, and uh, we were uh, we weren't supposed to be there as a as an individual that long. But uh, we they they kept us there a little bit longer than we were supposed to be there. Uh, since uh, since we were a combat unit, they they were uh, constantly rotating different different squads out and, uh, and there at, at the Da Nang base, and so. Uh, we traveled besides guarding the base every third day, uh, a, a squad. Uh, then one day we'd be out riding helicopters. I never knew where we were. We were in helicopters constantly uh, supporting the Arvin troops, and and uh, and then if, and if we lost a helicopter, we would go in and recover the pilots. And if we couldn't recover the helicopter, we blew it up. Mm-hmm. Now, you think you were quite possibly the first Native combat Marine in Vietnam. During those nine months, did you come across any other Natives at any point? No, I never did. No, I never did. I, uh, you know, I, I, it's kind of funny, but it, it made, I think it made me a better Marine. Uh, a lot of, the, lot of the, tr- the troops would say, hey, let the India do that. They're good at it. Let him go out there and do it. <laughs> and so, you know, and I, it really... It was kind of frightening, but it was a sense of pride, and it, and it made me want to be a uh, somebody that they could rely on. There, so I think it made me a better made me a better marine. Do you keep in touch with any of your platoon brothers? 
Yes, I have, but most of them are all past now. My last guy was a, he was also a Pratt from Louisiana and we were just, we uh, we served together through boot camp and through Vietnam and then we reacquainted after we got out and we were just, uh, uh, his children are like my children. And he mm -hmm. passed away uh, like like most of us with uh, cancer, you know, uh, we all we all had cancer issues from Agent Orange, and we're still still fighting that. And but I don't know of anybody in my platoon now that is still alive except me. Wow, wow, Harvey. Going back to to the Memorial uh, Warrior Circle of Honor, are there any names of veterans listed on the memorial? No, there are not. Uh, there, you know, part of the requirements were that uh, you could not list your name or your tribal name. You had to reach out and 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 uh, reach out so that you're not zeroing in on just one particular tribe, and that's and that's what I that's how come I chose to to use uh, the tradition and history and and ceremonies and uh, to touch touch all the different tribes, but there's no other no specific names. That I couldn't even put my own name on anything. Okay, let's go back to Alexandra and Alexandra. You know, just for anybody listening that's interested in in visiting the memorial, it, it sits outside of the museum. Is it always open to the public? It is. Uh, so it, even if you can't make it to the museum to the um, to the events this week and weekend, you can visit at any time. Um, and uh, and it's just. Like Harvey said, it's a place of peace and restoration. Um, and yeah, whether or not the museum it is open, you can go. Okay. And how was the memorial funded? Any taxpayer money that, that went to this? No, in fact, uh, no federal funds were allowed to be used for the memorial. So the museum uh, fundraised uh, for the last several years for, for the construction. Okay, so I would imagine there were probably a number of tribes that contributed. Absolutely, yes. And for people, you know, can people go and and do ceremonies and and other types of um, spiritual practices there? Is, is that are those welcome there at the memorial? This might actually be the best uh, question for Harvey because he built aspects of of ceremony into the design of the memorial. Okay, um, all right. You can leave. Yeah, I'll go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Harvey, please respond. Hey, you know, uh, Gene and I uh, would come in there after we was almost completed, and and we would go to the memorial, and, and there were uh, Hawaiians came in, and they did a ceremony, and then some, some uh, tribal people came in, and they did ceremonies and sang songs, and, and people were coming off the street wanting to know, What's 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 going on? What is this? You know, they were asking questions, and I thought that's a perfect time for us to to uh, educate non-native people about Native American veterans and their families. And so there there was there was a lot of ceremonies going on, and and they still are going on there. People are tying prayer cloths and and uh, making offerings into the into the earth and and uh, praying for one another. And I think that this is doing what it, we hoped it would, that it is causing people to heal, causing people to be strengthened, uh, just like we did in the old days, you know, when we, we uh, prayed over them before they came back into the camp. And, and I think that's what, that is what's going to happen. And it's, I want it to be a place where people are, are uh, encouraged and, and uh, helped. I want it to heal people and, 
It's just like any other place where you are. When you walk across this earth, you'll run across a spot that is, you'll say, oh, this is, this is a nice place. I really like this. It has a nice feel about it. And that's mm-hmm. what I want this memorial to be. When you walk in there, you have a nice feeling about it. There's something special that's happened in history, and, it, and it'll help people uh, to be healed and to recover. Harvey, earlier we spoke with with Candy Grimes, and, and she's up there in Alaska with the the Alaska Veteran Program. And um, any specific services that you would like to see available for all Native veterans, Harvey? Well, I would like to see that uh, some of the the uh, the VA benefits would would open up a little bit, and that that we'd have a uh, the health health field would would. Uh, would help these guys a little bit more. And I think part of the problem is uh, Indian people, veterans and families, and when they get denied one time, they just walk away, you know? Uh, and they, we need to, we need to help them a little bit more so that they'll uh, service, service reps that, that will help these guys fight it. We need to, we need to train these, get these veterans to, to not to give up so quick when they're, when they're, and I think that's just part of the Native American, uh, well, okay, that's done, you know. But we need to help them out, get their benefits that they that they deserve, uh, mm-hmm. health wise and and some monetary wise. Harvey, we're going to have to wrap up the show in about another minute. But but I want to ask you. We, we we mentioned earlier you've had a long, distinguished career as an artist. Where does Warrior Circle of Honor stand in relation to to all of the other artwork that you've created over the years? Oh man, that's you know. I, it's hard to compare when you when you identify uh, somebody that's been missing for 30 years or when you recover a child that's been stolen for 10 years or 20 years and you get them identified. Those things are hard to are hard to to compare to. But this the Veterans Memorial for All American uh, Hawaiian Alaska Natives, man, that's uh, that is an honor. I just have a hard time wrapping my brain around that. <laughs> well, I want to thank all of our guests today, Harvey Pratt. Candy Grimes, and Alexandra Harris for what's been an early celebration of Veterans Day here on Native America Calling. Join us again tomorrow for an analysis of election results and what it means for Native Americans. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to vote. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Ah, that's in chin can zooch shootin' in crispy out in sheet, in CMS yet twa, waxels eastum, chishkihuntum, shuan in crispy out in chimilk spench, pull necht smeet, chquokul tausish, scaly such mariam yet sachem, chuimint healthcare dot gov, uhwa chquokul tausin, one eight hundred three one eight two five nine six, yet smam meat in centers for Medicare or Medicaid services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.